Welcome to PitchBook's Invisible Capital Podcast, where we use data, research, and conversation to reveal important trends and issues in the private markets. Welcome, everyone, to the Invisible Capital Podcast. We're devoting season one to examining the private markets by discussing the work of PitchBook analysts and writers during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Adam Lewis, a private equity reporter for the PitchBook Newsletter. And I'm Hillary Wick, a senior analyst on our institutional research team. For this episode, we have Dylan Cox, our lead analyst covering private equity, who just published PitchBook's semi-annual Global Private Debt Report. Thanks for joining us, Dylan. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I think you are our first repeat guest on the podcast, Dylan, so welcome back. So I think this year actually was when you started the Private Debt Report, is that right? Yeah, that's right. We we began covering the space probably two years ago, um, you know, as it became a larger and larger part of the private market ecosystem, and then really formalized our coverage this year with the uh, inaugural private debt report, which I believe came out in Q2. So when you initially launched that report, you would have had no idea how different the reporting would be between, you know, when you were writing it in the first quarter and now at a high level, what kinds of things is our data telling us about this extraordinary moment? Um, quite a bit. You know, prior to the coronavirus pandemic, direct lending had really dominated the private debt space. Uh, for those unfamiliar, direct lending funds are essentially non-bank lenders that are structured as closed-in private capital vehicles. And so those have become very popular and had garnered a lot of institutional interest in recent years. But the story has really flipped uh, following the pandemic, and we've seen a lot more interest in opportunistic vehicles, so distressed debt funds uh, and special situations funds that can either buy existing debt or extend capital to companies in need of some sort of bridge financing during the pandemic. I was surprised that private debt fundraising is actually down quite a bit this year. And you kind of just said that the, that people are kind of focusing more on these opportunistic strategies. What are we seeing sort of under the surface of that decline in private debt fundraising? So private debt fundraising through the first half is uh, on pace for the smallest year in about five, six years in terms of capital raised. But we've seen quite the rebound in opportunistic strategies, as I mentioned. So Oak Tree, for example, is targeting a $15 billion fundraise for its latest distress vehicle. Wow. That would be the lar- largest distress debt fund uh, ever raised. Um, and then we've seen uh, quite a few managers who are already in the market. So KKR, for example, is raising a special situations vehicle towards the end of 2019. And uh, it had been in the market for a while. They seem to have had some trouble raising it. And after the pandemic started, they rebranded it as a COVID opportunities fund, <laughs> uh, which really seemed to help their case. And I, if I'm not mistaken, they closed on that fund uh, back in Q2 and uh, are now investing from it. Well, and we should also say that even though fundraising's down in 2020, that doesn't mean there isn't a lot of debt capital available. That's right. Uh, you know, capital overhang or dry powder, as we call it, uh, was already at some of the highest levels we had we had ever seen in private debt. Uh, so there's plenty of capital ready to be deployed into portfolio companies. And I also suspect that that those fundraising figures will rise or rebound in the back half of the year as some of these more opportunistic funds hold a final close and, and start to show up in the official fundraising numbers. Yeah, speaking of opportunistic funds, I had a question about Apollo Global and they raised like $25 billion for 
what they at the time described as just a kind of a traditional buyout fund. But I guess they've pivoted that, right? Yeah, uh, we, we touch on this in some of our uh, private equity analysis as well, but they had allowed themselves more flexibility to invest in either debt or equity, uh, depending on sort of which part of the macroeconomic cycle we're in. Apollo, as you know, really cut its teeth in um, high yield finance and, and leverage loans uh, back in the 80s and 90s. And so it's not surprising to see them, uh, you know, pivoting away from the equity side of leverage buyouts and and investing more in uh, leverage loans or distressed debt. Yeah, they love, you know, situations like this. It seems like while the rest of the economy is worried, they view this as an opportunity. Yeah, I'm, I actually met with Apollo back during the last financial crisis, and they were so super excited at the pivot in the world that, you know, they said, we'll do really well in equity, but, you know, when it comes back to being debt for control, we're going to be super excited. But Dylan, can you explain what debt for control is? How does Apollo make so much more money in this situation? Normally, debt is just clipping your coupons and getting your principal back. That's right. Uh, so distress for control investing uh isn't is buying the existing debt of a company so it's not extending new loans to a company uh but you're you're buying some kind of distressed security hopefully a uh you know lower than market price and then through some sort of restructuring agreement could be a chapter 11 bankruptcy or uh just a, a negotiation with the existing equity holders and creditors uh you hope to uh convert your your investments in the debt of that company into equity um, or, or somehow gain control of the company and affect its operations, um, restructure the capital stack and, and come out the other side as an owner. Interesting. And how would you, I guess, gain control? Would that, would the business have to struggle? Are there, are there any examples where that you can think of off the top of your head? And maybe this is putting you on the spot too much, but where Apollo, you know, they created a large loan program for a company and then they eventually took control. Uh, I'm not familiar with the recent transactions, mm -hmm. um, but it, you know, I think this gets into a much broader conversation of, uh, that the country is having right now about whether equity holders should be sort of bailed out or rather right. equity should be reset at zero, uh, when creditors cannot be repaid. Um, and, and so that's sort of the hope and distress for control investing is that, you know, if equity is wiped out, then the creditors become the new equity holders or owners of the company. What This kind of, uh, I guess, hits close home to me because I'm from a newspaper family and Apollo provided a $2 billion loan to New Media Investment Group to acquire Gannett earlier this year at a pretty high interest rate. And now that the COVID-19 pandemic has hit, uh, there's questions of whether Gannett is going to be able to pay back that loan. And pretty soon in two years when Gannett defaults on that loan, we're going to have Apollo Global Management, who has no vested interest in how a newspaper runs. They don't care about journalism. They care about their fiduciary obligation to their shareholders, right? And they're going to be in control of, you know, the biggest newspaper chain in the United States of America, which makes just absolutely no sense to me. It's not even a good business. So why do they want to be there? I don't know. Anyways, this is getting way off topic, maybe a little bit, but I just, it, it reminds me of, you know, kind of the finance, we were just talking before the show about the financial, financialization of the news industry. So there's, you know, if Apollo can make a buck off of a distressed company like a newspaper, they're certainly, 
you know, not going to hesitate at the opportunity to do it. So bringing us back to the topic. Get back, get back to the topic. (laughs) I I get one news media rant per season. And that That was was awesome. That was my one. Okay. So now we can go back to private equity. (laughs) And back to the report. So this is a global report, Dylan. Can you talk to us um, about, are you seeing any differences between the two biggest markets of Europe and North America? So in general, the private capital market in Europe is a bit less developed than in North America, uh, than the U.S. in particular. And that that comes as no surprise. You know, we see that in venture capital and private equity uh, and closed in real estate funds. Um, And it's just because there haven't been established managers based in Europe for as long as there have been in the U.S. Um, And so the the market in Europe tends to be much more fragmented in private debt. Um, You know, it's harder to do business and make investments across national borders, even within the EU, than let's say across state borders in the US. Um, and, and that's, you know, uh, you know, through no fault of their own, it's just the sort of the state of play uh, in, in European investing. Well, and arguably the US private debt market really got a boost because banks weren't allowed to do a lot of lending following the great, the financial crisis. It did, are the same restrictions on banks in Europe? Because banks used to basically own half of the companies in, in Europe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, traditional bank lending used to be the, the source of debt financing uh, in leveraged buyouts. Uh, but that changed quite a bit, as you mentioned, after the global financial crisis. Uh, the Dodd-Frank Act um, made it more difficult for some of the money center banks, you know, the, the Goldman's, the J.P. Morgan's, the... Uh, Bank of America is that everyone, uh, the names that everyone knows, it made it more difficult for them to lend to these uh, riskier transactions to lend past five or six times debt to EBITDA, uh, essentially made it so that they had to hold more tier one capital against these loans. Similarly, the uh, Basel banking regulations, I believe it was, I can't remember if it was Basel two or three introduced in, you know, a few years after the GFC uh, made it harder for banks internationally to do the same thing. There, There are you know, nuanced differences um, in, in how banks, of course, can operate between U.S. and Europe. But uh, largely, I would say direct lending has grown out of post-GFC banking regulations. It sort of created this new part of the market where the, the traditional lenders couldn't operate or where it was harder for them to operate. So private debt is not monolithic. How does it break down? What sort of categories are there? What types of customers are they serving? Um, you know, some are taking safer bets. Some of them are getting more risky. And kind of along all that, what's your best position to capitalize on this particular environment? Yeah, so there are quite a few sub-strategies within private debt, the largest of which is direct lending, which, as I mentioned, are, are non-bank lenders that are structured as as really private equity funds. Then there are distressed debt funds and, and special situations vehicles. Uh, distressed debt funds invest in the existing debt of companies, obviously in distressed situations. Special situations are a bit of a utility player, if you will, where they can invest in existing securities or they can uh, you know, extend emergency financing or just go into sort of niche areas of, of the market where maybe you can't operate at, at enough scale to make it worth it for the bigger players. Uh, and then we also cover real estate and infrastructure debt funds, which, of course, are, are more niche spaces specific to those uh, uh, tangible assets. Those, of course, many of those funds, uh, particular infrastructure debt, come out of 
firms like Brookfield that have larger real assets operations and tend to be specialists in those areas. Dylan, uh, how do you expect covenant light agreements will play out during the crisis? And can you explain for people like me who don't know what a covenant light agreement is? Sure. So a, a bit of background is that prior to, in, in the years leading up to the pandemic, uh, there was a proliferation, shall we say, of, of covenant light loans. It was something like 80 or 90% of all the loans in the market were covenant light. What that means is, so a covenant is essentially a, a term in the loan agreement that is a protection for the lender. It either uh, imposes uh, financial restrictions on the borrower, such as, you know, you have to maintain debt service coverage ratio or debt to equity ratios inside of a certain range, or it may prevent the borrower from taking on additional debt um, as a way to protect the lender. And now the loans that were being made in the last few years had fewer of these protections, fewer covenants. Do we have any understanding of why? Is that just because there's so much private debt competition that they just can't uh, ask for hard things because somebody else will lend the money instead? Yeah, in, in the private capital ecosystem, it, I think it was exactly that. There is uh, too much capital chasing too few deals. I hate to use that term. It's so cliched now, <laughs> but I, I really think that was the case. You know, it's similar in similar thing in venture capital where you saw all this money flooding into late stage venture capital funds. Um, and so you saw this proliferation of founder-friendly terms where, where founders were able to maintain, you know, complete control of the company, even though they owned less than half of the shares, that sort of thing. It, just the, the dynamics of that negotiation were changed by the amount of capital coming into private markets in the last few years. Uh, but it's not just private capital funds. So the broadly syndicated leveraged loan market is where we saw a lot of CovLite loans as well. And I would say you saw capital flooding into that space because... Interest rates have been so low for so long now, you know, there's been so much uh, quantitative easing that it's for institutions to meet the return targets. It's very hard to do that in, say, investment grade bonds anymore. And so you saw a lot of institutions chasing bank loans uh, to try and meet their uh, return targets. So I took you away from Adam's original question. How does all this CovLight paper out there play out in a crisis? So a lot of a lot of investors in the space were very wary of this proliferation of CovLite loans, and I think rightfully so. Uh, you know, as as an investor uh, in a fund who's lending to these portfolio companies, you would like to have more protection built in. But we've seen this uh, counterintuitively. We've seen sort of a silver lining of this this CovLite environment in that portfolio companies businesses. Uh, in the midst of this pandemic now have more flexibility because they don't have as many covenants restricting what they can do, restricting, you know, their, their ability to take on new capital. They aren't uh, entering a technical default, you know, if their share prices swing by, by, you know, so much and their debt to equity ratios change outside of that traditional covenant zone. You know, outside of reading like Moody's Dylan, what sort of proxies can we use to like see how the debt market is progressing? Is it just looking at defaults? Is it high yield debt indices or? So first I would direct people towards our private debt report. <laughs> uh, you know, shameless plug there uh, for our work. Uh, but private debt is a, a much smaller part of this very large lending ecosystem, right? Where mm -hmm. uh, you have the traditional banks focusing on uh, leverage loans and there are public leverage loan indices and high yield bond indices that you can track. You can get daily pricing 
uh, for these instruments, or at least for the index that tracks the underlying. Um, and you bring up an interesting point is, you know, what's going on there? Uh, we saw 20 to 30% drawdowns in March and April in those indices uh, that track high yield debt. Um, but the central bank, the, the Fed, uh, in, I want to say it was April, began buying corporate bonds and began buying um, not just corporate bonds, but ETFs that held high yield debt, uh, which they had never done before and, and which drove prices up in these markets. And, and I think will detract from some of the opportunities uh, that would have been there for investors in, in distressed securities. Yeah. What was their goal in doing that? Just to keep the market from collapsing? They were so worried about coronavirus or? Yeah, I, I think from the Fed's point of view, uh, they wanted to pr make sure there was liquidity in the market and make sure there wasn't forced selling, you know, similar to what you saw in 2008 and 2009. Uh, you know, the term people use is they, they want to be the backstop to the market, right? Right. Makes sense. Jerome Powell, former private equity executive at Carlyle Group, who is now running our nation's fiscal policy. So just another way that private equity is influencing our everyday lives, either directly or indirectly. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> <laughs> he, he is. I, I, I agree with you. It's uh, private equity is everywhere. Dylan, it's, it's definitely followed private equity, but I feel like private debt used to very much focus on places where it could just clip a coupon and get its money back. Um, and so it tended to follow certain sectors where that was a little more likely to happen, where there was less cyclicality. Did, has the sector investing changed in private debt over the years? And is that come, turning around to bite them now that we're in a crisis? It, it very much depends on which sub-strategy you're talking about. But let's take direct lending, for example. Uh, direct lending funds tend to invest, not always, but they tend to invest in sponsor-backed companies, meaning they're lending to leverage buyouts or they're uh, providing refinancing for private equity-owned companies. Um, which we mentioned in a recent podcast, there's been a lot more tech in private equity than we used to see. That's exactly where I was going. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot more tech. There's a lot more enterprise software in particular. Uh, you, you have sponsors like Vista Equity and Toma Bravo and Silver Lake who do almost nothing but tech uh, tech investing. And so the direct lending funds have followed those sponsors into those spaces. Broadly speaking, I would say the SaaS-based businesses, software as a service businesses have been relatively unaffected by this pandemic. And so I, I would say that benefits uh, the, well, that obviously benefits the, the creditors of these companies. Um, but, you know, Direct lending funds are also involved in healthcare and industrials and uh, some of the more traditional spaces of private equity as well. Dylan, what do you have coming down the debt pipeline next in terms of coverage? Uh, we'll have the next edition of this report released uh, in Q1 of 2021. So we got uh, some time we, to see how this all to see how this all plays out. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but depending on what happens, you know, we might might release an analyst note or two here before the end of the year. That sounds great. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining us for today's show. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And thank you to the sponsor of our global private debt report, Treeline Capital Partners. As always, you can see our show notes on pitchbook.com slash podcast. And I would offer a reminder to all the listeners that new episodes are published every Tuesday, and please rate and review the podcast so others can discover it. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Pitch Book's Invisible Capital Podcast.